Hello, Internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I've gone through a bit of a life change since the last time we've recorded. Oh, and what is that, Alex? I I got a dog. <laughs> I got a dog, Andy. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. I, you know, knowing the actual day-to-day and knowing that... Um, I don't mean this unkindly, but it wasn't necessarily you making the driving decision to get a dog. Hearing the tenderness and the the delicate warmth in your voice saying that just melts my heart and makes me so happy. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> no, um, for those for those of y'all listening, um, he's actually sitting like right next to me right now. He's like lying down. Um, but his name is Nico. He was Stephanie's birthday present this year. He's two. He's a tremendous mutt, um, mostly Australian cattle dog, and we think some lab and probably some collie in there too, though who the hell's to say. And he is the sweetest, chillest, most just like low-key dog like ever. (laughs) And... Well, okay, so I I made a point of telling Stephanie before we got any dog. I was like, hey, listen, I'm not going to be cutesy. I'm that's not how I am with. Uh huh. It's not how I am with. No, and here's the thing: I'm not cutesy, but I am affectionate. Like I don't do the like scrunch up my face and do little voices thing. Um, I do like scratch behind his ears a lot and tell him that he's my good boy. And tell him that I love him every night when I put him in a crate and go to bed. So you very much still fit the uh, the stereotype of, you know, patriarch of the household who didn't want a pet, but now you will take a bullet for that pet and he is your companion who you scratch behind the ears every night. I never said I didn't want a pet. I said that I didn't want a puppy. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't want a, like born in the last six weeks like needs every ounce of training and everything like i i have never had a pet never had a pet i never had a pet in my entire life my sister had a turtle and a fish there's more fish in the sea but i never had a goldfish to begin neither of which lasted very long um and weren't mine (laughs) um but like i have never had a pet and i'm sitting here going like i have heard all of the stories i know if you get i have watched stephanie's family raise a dog from a puppy Mm -hmm. and i am very aware that it's like it's not quite like having a baby but the analogs are significant they need way more attention you training them is a much more involved process and and caring for them and i was like i do not want a puppy i'm down for a dog just you know let's get someone with a few years under their belt first and honestly i think it's commendable that first of all you kind of knew that that's what you wanted to do but also like you see so many people especially like animal shelters and stuff talk about like people 
only only going after a puppy and romanticizing the oh let's get the baby and and he'll spend his entire life with us and there are so many dogs and cats and other animals that you know for for whatever circumstance when they are no longer a puppy find themselves still needing a family and a home and and honestly it's a really great thing to you know not just go for the sweet cute brand new puppy and instead to find an older dog that needs a new home and and taking him in so i think that's really great man thank you he's like i said he is he's really low maintenance like he already came crate trained he was already housebroken the first night we had him he like quietly sat by the door when he needed to go outside and Getting him into a crate wasn't any issue, and he he doesn't chew on anything that isn't his toys. Um, he does destroy any stuffed animal. Like he got a, we got him a few like stuffed animal dog toys, and he just demolishes them. He rips the <laughs> stuffing right out of them. Nice, um, good boy. Yeah, all the silicon stuff he's great with. Like he's that that can stand up to the abuse, but he just destroys any of the stuffed animals but only the stuffed animals like he hasn't done anything on our furniture or anything like that he tests boundaries now and again like we don't let him on the bed but we do let him on the couch so he's tried to hop on the bed and we've shoot him off and he only has really tried once on each bed mm. like, i took him to go hang out with a friend um who was dog sitting for another friend of ours and like he started barking at a neighbor across the street and leapt over the gate to try and like i don't know i think he was in guard dog status because that neighbor was like kind of being a little loud and i guess it freaked him out a little bit and i had to like like i went down the stairs past the gate to come after him and he like immediately knew like oh shit i did something wrong (laughs) well good good on him and i didn't realize he could jump so high so that's good to know it wasn't a high gate, oh, okay. um, but but yeah, like he's not he's not a big dog, but he's not a little dog. He does technically qualify as large. Um, he's sixty pounds, but he's like not even knee high. He's he's like me. He's short and heavy. Um, <laughs> sure, but he's I mean he's really sweet and he just kind of chills there. And Andy, I. I like him a lot. Oh, I I can hear it in your voice, brother. And I, I love that you love this new dog. And I welcome the uh, inevitable transition on this podcast of becoming a dog cast. And <laughs> <laughs> every episode, we're going to get a Nico update. I mean... That'll just be like a little corner. and Because uh, honestly, the Nico update, like, listen, his life is not complicated. It's literally just going to be me being like, yeah, so today I loosened his harness a little bit extra as we're still trying to find that spot. And he tore another leg off of his stuffed octopus. Back to you, Andy. You know, I think that's what the people are going to want. I don't know. I, I wish there was the technology to let him communicate and come on for a five minute segment and tell us all the new smells he smelled but sadly we're not there yet you know what i would legitimately be interested in okay so andy you host a podcast with stephanie 
I would love to see like the next time y'all record get like her story and her perspective on getting Nico and then take my my commentary here, stitch it with her commentary, and it could be like a little like five minute bonus episode on both of the feeds, just so that you see this weird comparative analysis for what kind of dog parents we are. I love this. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Well, should we get started? Yes. Thank you for joining okay. us on Love Hate Relationship. And I can already tell, internet friends, that you are uh, d- incredibly excited for all these dog updates, as am I. <laughs> um, when we're not talking about brand new furry friends on the show, we are instead doing our regular segments where one of us talks about something we love, the other one talks about something they hate, and then we take yours and the internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And Alex, you have the love. I'm assuming it's not more on the dog. No, no, it is not more on the dog, though. Again, if he like does anything while I'm recording, uh, like, Homie's napping right now. Like, if he does anything while I'm recording, I'll let you know. But, like, Jesus Christ, Andrew. Oh, I'm very much that person. (laughs) Anyway, continue. Oh, I love you dearly. Okay, so my love for this episode, um, Andy, I always like to, you know, start off with a little bit of a question. And any of our listeners who are just reading the title are probably going to be really, really confused because it's a weird title. So, I want to go in to this from the side, as I am wont to do, and ask you, Andy, to name me the last time you remember an electric guitar-based band being legitimately huge. And if you can, tell me who that band was and some other bands they were associated with. And to be clear, when I say huge, I mean like selling out stadiums, top of the charts, their songs are everywhere on the radio, like friggin' huge. Okay, and I I have an idea in my head for this question, but I guess I kind of wasn't entirely sure what you meant by uh, electronic guitar, uh, electric guitar based band, like just a, I mean, a, a rock group or a, a, a musical act where the guitar is an important part of it. I'm I'm thinking more like a type of a rock band. Um, you know, my classic is always guitar, bass, drums, vocals, and maybe sometimes keyboards or piano. Okay. Op- p- keyboards optional. Um, but like that kind of a setup that where the most important thing is your is your backbeat and your guitar riffs and your guitar chords and it's distorted electric guitar. Okay, so so here's what I'm thinking. Then one of these I'm I'm very confident in, but I'll list them both. I think about I think about a bunch of like I, I think about Fallout Boy. I think about okay. Fallout Boy and to a lesser extent Panic at the Disco. You know, Fallout Boy in particular, especially um, after they came back, like they became a top of the billing headliner, sell out the arena. Like they just played um, now that concerts are a thing again, whether they should be or not. um, They just played um, one of the big arena venues in Orlando. They came in with like Weezer and somebody else and like Green Day. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Weezer and Green Day. I mean, shit. 
Green Day being a little older, but but that's another answer right there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in terms of like recency, I think I am going to have to go with like probably Fallout Boy. No disrespect to Coheed, but I know like Coheed will sell out an arena, but that's that has a lot more to do with the fans. I think Fallout Boy has a wider spread, as it were. So. I'm going to say this. I appreciate that answer. Fallout Boy was definitely like one of my answers too. I feel like that era, that which you know we've talked about on this show multiple times. That era, that emo, pop punk, like early to mid two thousands like era, really kind of felt like the last time that that guitar distorted electric guitar based music was the biggest thing before it was really really supplanted by i mean let's be honest hip-hop yeah and a certain type of electronic dance uh infused pop music so for reference there andy save rock and roll your favorite fallout boy album and their like comeback album was very poppy very like hip-hop r&b tinged it was it was also in 2013 Jesus. That that, yeah, right. that that album came out. That <laughs> album is eight years old, Andy. Ah! <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so, like, when I think of, like, the period, like, that peak guitar-based period, you know, I, I think of, like, From Under the Cork Tree and Infinity on High, which is, like, 2005 yeah. era. You know, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. I think that was 2005 or 2006 for the Panic folks. Paramore um, released, you know, their biggest albums right around that time. But yeah, that that kind of heyday. And I appreciate that. That that really emphasizes to me that depending on where you are, you're looking at anywhere between eight and fifteen years ago. Yeah, because since so, since that, right? Any other band I can even think about, like. MCR back in the day, again, Code and Cambria, I mean, I it doesn't feel like it, but they kind of came out at the same moment. Paramore, like early, early to early 2010, those those bands. So I, I appreciate that. And I, I want to make a point here to say that the band that I'm talking about right now because I am going to talk about a band on this episode. Um, They are not selling out those arenas right now. They are not top of the pops. However, I think that they seem to be spearheading a revival in that particular era of music and are really leading a charge for that kind of distorted electric guitar, bass drum, vocal type of music. Mm -hmm. And... They're at the precipice of something, and I'm fortunate enough to have gotten in a little bit on the ground floor listening to them, and I want to talk about them here just to add a little bit of attention. So my topic for this episode is the pop-punk power trio Meet Me at the Altar, and that is Meet Me at Symbol the altar which that's that's a fueled by ramen title if i've ever heard one for a band name i mean and to be fair they formed that band five years before they got signed to fueled by ramen but... uh, there, there you go 
<laughs> so, um, Andy, have you have you heard of this group at all? I I swear you've brought them up either on the show or in just conversation with me, like once or twice. Because when you sent over your notes, I was like, "Oh yeah, they're a band," but I yeah. I cannot tell you a song. And if I've heard their music, I didn't realize it was them. So that's where I'm coming from with this. Totally fair. I, I think that's going to be where a lot of people are for this. This is not one of those cases where I'm like, I'm talking about The Doors or Carly Rae Jepsen, where everyone is at least passingly familiar with stuff. Mm-hmm. So, some basic background. Formed in 2015, Meet Me at the Altar is an East Coast pop-punk band made up of three women of color, specifically Edith Johnson on lead vocals, Taya Campbell on both guitar and bass. I don't understand how that works in live shows, but... It's there. Um, and Ada Juarez on drums. They started when Campbell and Juarez met actually on YouTube, connecting over pop punk covers that Juarez had been posting, and they began collaborating. Juarez had been posting these covers of different pop punk songs, um, and Campbell reached out and like messaged her on YouTube and was like, I love your drumming. I love your work. I would love, I'm a guitar player and a bass player. I would love to collaborate with you. Nice. In 2017, Johnson joined. Um, they had held actually like online auditions, and she had sung Paramore's All I Wanted, uh, which is a great song, and joined the band at that point. And that's been the lineup ever since 2017. They began touring the following year. Have Now, I need to emphasize this. There's three members of this band. Before they started touring together, they were all living in Florida, Georgia, and New Jersey, respectively. <laughs> so I'm going to get into that a little bit later, this kind of idea of a deconstruction of a localized scene. Mm-hmm. But just to finish out their history, um, after self-releasing an album and three EPs, their major label debut, Model Citizen, was released by Fuel by Ramen on August 13th of 2021. Literally, Andy, like, this is eight days ago since time of recording. Um, at a couple of weeks um, for the drop date. So they just released their major label debut EP. So if you're a fan of rock and roll and especially that Fueled by Ramen sound, what you're saying is right now, like, this is getting in on the ground floor except for all of the people who've been seeing them in clubs for the past six, four years, however long it's been being like the true meet me at the altar hipster stands. I mean, yeah. And and I'll be honest. I'm not one of those. Like I probably started hearing about this band about two years ago um, when they started getting some write-ups. Um, they, they, there were some write-ups about them in Loudwire and Guitar World and Alternative Press. And I'd stumble across them on Twitter and I and I started checking out their stuff and really deep dived them. I think last year mm-hmm. uh, with all the APs that they that they had and all their music is available on Spotify or streaming. You can go on their website um, and uh, which is literally just meet me at the altar um, The at is actually spelled out on that one, and they have all of their music up on like a Spotify playlist and YouTube clips. Like you you can listen to all of their shit for free. Um, but I started deep diving into them. Uh, and 
I again, I feel like we're on the precipice of them being I might be wrong, you know. I I might really be wrong. But they just released an EP. Um I'm assuming that if the EP does well enough, um Fueled by Ramen will fund them for a full-on studio album, mm-hmm. which will hopefully get major release and it seems like a perfect time because TikTok has really blown pop punk and ska back up. Absolutely. Olivia yeah. Rodrigo just had a huge, huge song with very deep pop punk influences in Good For You. And I feel like we're we're just on the edge of this. And if I'm right about this, I I will be so happy to have guitar-based music have a spot. I, I don't want it to like reign supreme again i love hip-hop i love pop i want these things to still coexist but i want i don't want guitar-based music to fade and i feel like this band is spearheading and possibly is is the perfect band for the moment to really bring that back into the mainstream okay so um to talk about their style uh, and, we, and I've danced around this, you know, it's familiar to any of us who grew up on that early 2000s pop punk and emo. They've been compared really heavily to Paramore. A- Andy, I'm going to ask you um, to put in a drop from a Meet Me at the Altar song. And really, you can do any of them. Um, Feel a Thing, Hit Like a Girl, Garden, May the Odds Be Ever in Your Favor. Um, all of these are great songs of theirs. And in all of them, I swear to God, you could hear them and be like, that kind of sounds like Haley Williams singing. This is my favorite homework assignment you've ever given me because it's going to require me to listen to, at the very least, a bunch of their singles. I mean, I'm again, just pull them up on Spotify. You'll see the singles listed there. They sound very paramory. Um... They've been endorsed online by members of All Time Low in the Wonder Years, which, like, for those of us who were big in the emo scene, like, those are, those are some of our favorites. shit. Um, but the music is straightforward, distorted guitar-based drums and vocals. They have emotional lyrics, poppy melodies. If there are solos at all, they are very simple. And they just... We know this style. Andy, this is our style, but being done by a new band awesome okay and so and and i mean like again i mentioned this they've gotten some write-ups loudwire new york times billboard guitar world alternative press all of these avenues have been writing and mentioning this band and they're frequently putting them i see them at the top of lists constantly of like 10 bands that are leading the pop punk revival, um, 20 rock bands of color you should be listening to right now, Um, 15 uh, queer focused bands, because I think at least two of the members are identified as as openly queer uh, of some kind, like bands that you should be listening to. Like they are in all of these avenues and they are just getting this incredible buzz. And they're just starting to get that mainstream buzz. But they're still at that point where I don't know that many people who've ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. Even people who I who are active rock fans. 
So I really want to spread this gospel. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. And I don't think we've really done something quite like this on the show before. Something that could serve as a a call to attention about a, a up-and-coming thing. So, you know, it speaks a lot about the faith you've got in the uh, project, at least. Or at least how... Um, how into the band yourself you are, which is, you know, what we're about here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and like, I, I'm, I've always been upfront about this. I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but, um, I know I've talked about being a guitar player as a fan of guitar based music. I, there's something that I see really problematically within rock fans, which a is a weird fetishization of older music. It's the people who are like, oh, yeah, no, the best music there ever was was in the 70s and everything since has been shit. Mm. Which honestly, like, fuck off and die, boomer. Um, (laughs) Even if you are my age and saying that, fuck off and die, boomer. Um, The other thing is people who put down artists who look or sound a certain way that are championing guitar-based music... And they're being shitty about it. I I have maintained, you know, signature guitars for artists are not a new thing. People have been doing them for decades. The biggest selling signature guitar of the last, I think, 10 years has been Taylor Swift's Baby Taylor that she did in association with Taylor Guitars. Uh, No relation between Taylor Guitars and Taylor Swift. They just, they're they're two different brands and they did a collaboration. Sure. Yeah. But the Taylor Swift guitar put more guitars in the hands of more young people than Kirk Hammett's signature guitar, than Carrie King's signature guitar, than fucking Billy Corgan's signature guitar, even more than Kurt Cobain's signature guitar. Huh. And as someone who cares about guitar-based music surviving, it matters to me that young people are playing guitars. And if they get into playing guitar because they love Taylor Swift, cool! When I think about a band like Meet Me at the Altar... I think, okay, how much of rock music is white dudes in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s? And here we have young, queer women of color who are are doing straightforward pop-punk music. And doing it the best that I've heard it in 15 years. This is this band is the best thing to happen to guitar-based music for at least the last 15 years. There's something great about that. You know, something that just struck me, I hadn't put this together in my mind until then. You mentioned Olivia Rodrigo earlier. Have you listened to the very latest stuff Willow Smith has been putting out? Such a fake just like you, but I can see the true transparency. Uh, you know, I have heard the uh, new single. I haven't listened to the new album. But yes, I also have seen that that one is definitely leaning hard into that kind of punkier sound. Yeah, like she's very much like following in Jada Pinkett's footsteps and fucking around with some heavy metal. Um, I, you know, the single I know you're talking about is the one for Transparent Soul, which had fucking Travis Barker doing the drums on. 
Yeah, so, absolutely. I'm, you know, if if Willow Smith's the headliner and wants and and meet me at the altar, does uh, well with the CP, and somebody sees a really, it would be a really smart marketing ploy, honestly, to have just a a tour featuring almost exclusively punk women of color in the scene running around doing this music and, and spearheading a new wave that that'd be pretty fucking cool fueled by ramen make it happen <laughs> oh my god i love that like i i'm not gonna i, I wouldn't promise that i would go to that concert because you know pandemic right. but like i would buy that live stream i would pay money for that live stream yeah, absolutely i just no and that's amazing i just Pop punk never went away. From the heyday that we were talking about to the evolution of bands like Fall Out Boy and Panic and Paramore, like, it never went away. It just stopped being mainstream in the same way that it was. Mm -hmm. This is a band that can bring it back into the mainstream and give it that space. Like, I I don't think guitar-based music will ever be as mainstream again. I think the era of the electric guitar as the focal point of music is gone. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we, the saxophone was this, and the trumpet were the centerpiece for popular music for a good 40 years. Electric guitar has got, got, I think a good 50 or 60 years. It's not a bad run. No. But there are still there is still music with saxophone and trumpets in it. There's still going to be music with guitars. I just want it to survive and keep evolving in, in, in this incredible way. Something I really love about the story of this band is this is the first punk band that I have seen that didn't come from a localized scene. Local scenes are so important to punk music. Mm-hmm. These these folks didn't come out of the Berkeley scene the way Green Day did. They didn't come out of Chicago hardcore the way Fallout Boy did. They came out of fucking YouTube. And that is maybe one of the most telling, you know, you speak about evolution of music in terms of bands, but that's an instance of evolution of, of music just in terms of formation. Yeah, like we have come a very long way from like fucking Johnny Rotten auditioning in a sex shop to be the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. Like Edith Johnson recorded All I Wanted in like her fucking bedroom and sent it to these folks and they're a band now. Like... The old scenes aren't, I'm not going to say they're not relevant anymore, because I do really believe in the power of localized scenes for music. Yeah. But the fact that we could get such a great band out of something new, some, a wholly different way of doing things, like, people talk about how technology, the fact that garage band means that you can record an entire album in your bedroom... Hell, I'm recording this podcast, my half of this podcast on GarageBand, 
people talk about what a revolutionary idea that is, but the but but the fact that you can start a band that becomes your livelihood and you can help completely change music with that is so potent and so powerful and so democratizing and just this is what guitar-based music needs to do to survive. This is the thing that people get, again, those same people who make the dinosaur argument about the 60s and 70s and music at that time. This is, if you follow that model, this music dies. If you follow this model, where you get young people with young people aesthetics and young people values. You know, these these women aren't even millennials. They're Zoomers. True, yeah. Like, they're younger than us, Andy. And they have taken the tools that they have at hand and found community with people that they never would have met otherwise. Like, the only thing these folks have in common geographically is that they're all in the... I was sitting here, like, I normally talk about bands as like, oh yeah, the Doors are from Venice Beach, the Beatles are from Liverpool. Like, no, they're East Coast because New Jersey, Florida, and Georgia, but that's the best I got, yo. (laughs) They're of YouTube. Finally, something good from YouTube that it can contribute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so I just, I wanted to wrap it up. I, I can wrap it up there. I mean, their music is brilliant. Johnson's vocals and melodies are fantastic. Campbell is one of the best guitar, new guitar players that I've heard in, like, honestly years. Like, I really think that her her ear for rhythm and her ear for catchy riffs is like it is so fresh and so new and exactly what this kind of music is needing i encourage all of you if you have spotify like or even just an internet connection go on their website find their stuff stream model citizen stream their old stuff give this band some attention if you even kind of love guitar based music pop punk cool ass shit like, check out their stuff. I really, really want everyone here. If, if all I get out of this is meet me at the altar, sees 10 additional streams than they would have otherwise, I will be happy. I'm going to keep spinning them. I'm going to keep an eye on this particular band in this particular space because as far as I'm concerned, they should have been on that stadium tour with Fallout Boy and Green Day and Weezer. Honestly, they could have replaced Weezer, and I would have been more likely to go to that concert. <laughs> right. But yeah, that is my love for this episode, Andy. Thank you for indulging me. I hope at the very least I've convinced you to check them out, um, and I will link to their stuff in the show notes. But meet me at the altar. Please check them out, y'all. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much, man. I I think that's a really great thing to hype up someone else and... Yeah, I agree. We need to get everybody listening to this and we need to get them viral on TikTok because that that is like the new way you do this shit. That's that's what happened with Olivia Rodrigo. That's what um you know, that was replaced with Stay, which is that song with Justin Bieber and I want to say the name is The Kid Leroy, which is a very silly That name sounds familiar. Yeah, it's a, in my opinion a silly stage name but whatever he's he's already richer than i'll ever be 
and it's, it's been better than little Uzi vert. That's true. So yeah, meet me at the altar. Let's get him on TikTok. I'm here for it. Thank you so much, dear boy. Absolutely. Shall we move on? Yes. Yeah, speaking of uh, technology and media consumption evolving, let's talk. We, we just talked about it in a good way. Let's talk about it in a not so good way. <laughs> so my hate, it's been, it's been a long time since we've done what I'm about to do, which is I hate the haters of a thing. I don't think we've done that since your defense of Nickelback. Uh, maybe once or twice. I don't know. We're, we're, yeah, it's episode like seventy-four. They're one. starting to blur together. I Cross, lie. CrossFit haters. That's I think right. I did CrossFit haters. That's right. That's right. Well, today I'm going to talk about why I hate subtitle haters, which will also serve as a a, a defensive subtitles. And and to be perfectly clear, I'm talking about like subtitles when it comes to tv and film i don't know if there's any other application but just to be completely crystal clear i mean youtube videos yeah that's true (laughs) well you know there's the difference between subtitles and closed captioning and i'll get into that Um, okay but to be completely upfront this hate came to me last night um my wife kind of fell asleep on the couch and I was just looking through my queue of movies being like, what's something she would never want to watch with me anyway. (laughs) Here's here's a Polish slasher movie that came out last year that I've been meaning to get around to watching. (laughs) So I, I, I I'm sitting on my couch putting on nobody sleeps in the woods tonight, which is a Netflix produced Polish slasher movie. And it's fine. Like I'm not really even going to talk about it that much. It's it, it pushes no boundaries, but it's well-made. It was better than fear street. It's a perfectly fine slasher movie, but the, the big thing about it is it was filmed in Poland. The cast is Polish. I noticed the default language option Netflix just defaulted to was an English dub. You know, immediately there's some, there's, there's the one-off mailman who gets killed by the crazy cannibal guy. And, and he starts talking in English and I noticed the lips don't sync up. Right. And I'm like, wait, I thought this was Polish. Hold on. This is Polish. And I had to go into Netflix's settings and change the audio option to the original Polish like audio. And this really annoyed me. People have been shitting on subtitles. I feel like for as long as non-English speaking countries have been making films, you know, I, I don't, I don't quite have a sense of what this phenomenon is like in other countries when it comes to American movies. I know in a lot of non-English speaking countries, they kind of willingly uh, pick up multiple languages easier and better Mm -hmm. and just kind of make it Mm -hmm. a thing. And it's part of the way that English has like become one of the predominant languages on earth. But you know, I can give you the Colombian perspective. I'm, I'm fascinated for the Colombian perspective. Okay, so I get this. I've talked about it on the show. My parents are Colombian. I have a lot of family in Colombia who I talk to. And something to note, American movies, very big in Colombia. They're big all over the world. Our Arguably our biggest cultural, our, our biggest export in the U.S. is our culture. 
is our media and movies are a huge part of that. So like all my cousins, they've watched all the Marvel movies. They have watched, you know, the Christopher Nolan movies. They have, they saw, I, I talked to a cousin of mine who was living in Colombia about how much he liked No Country for Old Men and saw it when he was in high school in theaters multiple times. Like American movies are very, very big in Colombia. And generally speaking, if you go to a theater, they will just have Spanish subtitles for the American movies. And in Colombia, a lot of people know English. Maybe they're not fluent, but they're at least conversational. And so they'll, they, even without the subtitles, they'd be able to pick up oh, probably, you know, 80 per, 75 to 80% of anything that was on there. But when there are movies in English, everyone there is just like, cool. All right, we'll watch, we'll watch Avengers, throw on the subtitles. And it's, just normal. It's considered perfectly standard. Not an issue in the slightest. Well, I love that. You know, I, I, I don't want to sit here and be like, well, here's the American perspective, because, of course, I, I know you know it. But for for the sake of this conversation, you know, you, you know as well as I, the American perspective is and always has been to do stuff like just hire a, a second team to do a, a really crappy redub of a, of a Godzilla movie or, you know, have your characters say the first like three lines they have in whatever the native language of the character is. And then just kind of do an artsy transition where mid sentence, they're suddenly speaking English now. Um, sure. You know, to, to bring it to movie theaters, you know, we both worked at a Regal for a, a number of years and there would always be like the one theater where the big blockbuster was playing. And if you wanted to watch the blockbuster with closed captions, you had to be sure that you booked it to see it in that specific theater because there, it, it wasn't going to have anything for all of the other screenings. There is this. I feel like it's predominant just probably because they're the ones who complain the loudest and it's probably a much smaller amount of people that I'm talking about than not, but there is this seemingly predominant like anti subtitle bias when it comes to specifically in, in my experience, you know, English speaking moviegoers. And I do have some facts to back this up uh, in doing research. I discovered that according to IndieWire, Audience attendance for foreign films released in America has dropped 61% over the last seven years. And, you know, I can draw some really depressing uh, parallels to other things that have happened in the past seven years, but I'm just going to go ahead and skip over that and state that it's really frustrating to me, for, to me specifically, because I feel like it leaves so much art on the table for your average moviegoer. Granted that the average moviegoer isn't going to care that they're leaving art on the table, but there's so much like good, brilliant content that people block themselves away from by having this completely, um, completely self-imposed requirement that something has to be in English no matter what, because you don't want to look at a one inch gap on the screen to, to quote the director of parasite, to quote the director of 
Oscar-winning Best Picture Parasite, the esteemed Bong Joon-ho. Yes. (laughs) No, I get that. I get that. Um, And it's funny because something something that I am remembering right here, um, again, bringing in a Colombian perspective, if you look up the movies on TV, if you're just channel flipping, you will often get a Spanish dub. Yeah. If you're seeing a movie on TV. And I wonder if there is just this, maybe it, maybe it is this idea that just like, if it's TV, then you want less, there's less buy-in and you want, you want to create the easier buy-in. And this assumption across the cultures, because I know this is present in the American culture of Americans just don't want to read. Right. Maybe it is when a Colombian is at home, they just don't want to read. So while our movie theater will have the subtitles, our TV, we're just going to do a dub. And it's often kind of a crappy dub. Um, I don't know. It's. I think there are layers. I, go, sorry, go ahead. You and I both like movies to love movies. I, 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 I care about good movies. You are a movie guy. And what do you say really to the people who don't go to movies to experience good art? They go to movies to experience entertaining media. Right. And I, I say that they are doing themselves a disservice because there is so much entertaining media that then still falls into the guidelines of a quote unquote foreign film. And to that person who is like, no, I will watch the foreign film. I'm just going to put on the English dub so that I don't have to watch the thing. I, I, you know, my, my biggest argument to that becomes you're making it, Nobody makes a film sitting there going like my intention is going to carry over a translation because when you redub mm. a film, first of all, there's the actual physical, like um, there's the actual physical changing of the text. There's a different script writer because that's how translation works. You know, you can't just have it be word for sure. word. Um, so you're you're then changing the script and then depending on how good the dub is, you know, they 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 hire a new team of voice actors. They hire I know for a fact they hire a director who like is supposed to watch over the project and make sure that people are carrying over the intention and the gravity and the vocal subtext of any given line. And if you've got somebody who really cares about it, then then certainly people try their best and maybe then it's only a little clunky. But by the nature of this exact phenomenon, more often than not, you're going to have people where this is their nine to five, this is their job. Eh, who really cares if it's all actually that right? Yeah, you said the words you were supposed to say. You You carried vaguely the emotional intention. And like, oh, that just that's chipping away. That's, that's pouring some acid on the artistic intent of the director. Can of, I, of the filmmaker. Well, go ahead. 
can I add to the shittiness of this just a little oh, bit? Always, of course. How much do you know about the process of dubbing anime? You know, not so much. I, I was going to say just real quick, I I have a completely different take on anime. I think for anything animated where the words coming out aren't going to match the lips no matter what the language is, then it's fine. I prefer the dub in an anime, but but what's the shitty thing? Well, so that's the interesting thing is in an anime... Um, when they do dubs of those, they do the same thing. They have voice actors in the in the dub language. They have someone supervising all of this stuff. Right. They have a translation. They actively in in an anime dub will change the lines so that they can more easily match the lips. Mm, sure. And in some cases, that results in a complete and total mistranslation of the original text. You can probably find this on YouTube, like examples of like most hilarious um, anime dub mistranslations where it'll side by side the, you know, the, the translation from a sub and put in and show how ridiculous the dub had to be changed in order for it to match the lips. Because when they dub anime, they care a lot about making sure that the lips match. Which, like, you know, they don't, they didn't do with like original dubs of Chinese um, kung fu movies in the 60s. Right, exactly. For example. Like with anime, they try and make it match, but that means they are frequently significantly changing the content of what is being written there. And the problem is, it if that bothers you, it's also kind of the reason it works. A lot of the early, a lot of like those Toonami animes that, you know, Christopher Sabat and Steve Blum made their bones doing, uh, a lot of those, the reason why we gravitated so cleanly to them was because the voice the voiceover matched the lips so much that it wasn't jarring for us as small children sure even if it was a mistranslation yeah and you know that does <laughs> I, I i am thinking of examples i i I've, I've run into about that now by and large i don't know why i'm more okay with that in anime but i am i think it really boils down to there's only so much you can do. It There is no possible way that people are drawing lips to match the phonetic sounds coming out of them. So no matter what, technically you're just watching a cartoon's mouth flap up and down in different ways. Yeah. I think that's a huge factor for me. Trying to watch a foreign film or even a foreign TV show and then experiencing the same problem... I don't know what it is. There's also there's also this uh, phenomenon I've noticed where like they try to keep the score, so they'll they'll be playing the score and then they'll be playing the the uh, dub on top of it, and it, it creates this really jarring effect where it's very clear that it's not supposed to be going together. And that's just an example where they recorded the dub independently uh like they did not give the actors the music to go with it right 
and with the music was already there. Obviously, if you're in the editing bay and you're adding music in, you can adjust things and time things out right so that it does effectively work. But if you're just trying to jam in a voiceover performance with none of that context, it's going to be jarring. Right. And this is for both anime and you know live action, but it becomes this phenomenon where it's like, okay, you need to convey this amount of information in eight seconds because in eight seconds in the footage, somebody else talks, go do what you need to do. And I think that's where you also get into like line shaving and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. The predominant yeah. argument is that subtitles distract from the film. You know, people are like, oh no, I'm, I'm, I can't be watching the film if I'm staring at the line of text at the bottom of the screen. And by and large, I don't think that holds any water at all because it's basically like anybody with a, a decent amount of reading comprehension can flip their eyes down to the bottom and then go back up. And if what is, if what is on the screen matters that much to you, if you are so like, no, I'm, I cannot be distracted from what I am seeing. Well, then shouldn't you be turning off the sound? Shouldn't you be like shutting your ears away so that you can fully digest the visual composition of the piece if you care so much? I, okay. So I'm someone who uses closed captioning. Mm -hmm. And I know you said you wanted to mention the difference between these things. When I'm watching things in English, I put on closed captioning because it helps me follow along. Sure. And because of that, subtitles have always never been that big of a deal for me. Do you think any of this has to do with just practice? Because I've watched stuff with closed captioning since I was a kid. Right. I remember learning how to turn on the closed captioning. Because my parents, like on our TV in the living room, my parents rarely cared if there was closed captioning or not. I liked closed captioning, so they were like, that's fine, we'll put on the closed captioning. We don't care. I liked the closed captioning because I always felt like I... I, I, am, I am a visual and specifically a verbal visual person. Words help me comprehend things. Um, it's a big reason why the way that I would memorize like my lines when I did theater mm -hmm. was I would hand write my lines from memory over and over and over again. That did more for me than like reciting them verbally ever did. Huh. And, and that's what worked for me. But because I got so much practice from very early on reading closed captioning, constantly reading closed captioning, when I started watching foreign films and with stuff with subtitles, it was no issue whatsoever for me. Because I was just used to it. I got good at going back and forth between the words and the visual. I tend to find people who hate subtitles tell me that they've never done it. They just never use it. As soon as there are subtitles, they're like, nope, can't watch this. As soon as there's closed captioning, they're like, can we turn those off? Right. I wonder I, I wonder if it's not so much the practice things, though that may have something to do with it, as it becomes 
kind of a knee-jerk pride thing for somebody who is out of practice, for somebody who is not used to doing that and can't process this idea of, hey, I'm a little embarrassed that I can't really read this so quickly and I'm afraid I might miss the thing and then therefore not enjoy this as much so I don't want to do it. Nobody nobody is is saying that. They're just saying, oh no, I, I can't do these foreign films. I hate subtitles. I don't want to... I, I, I'm not here to read. Yeah. And I'm never going to catch those. I'm never going to get those people on my side, but... Yeah. I remember getting into an argument with someone I went to grad school with who who said this, who said, like, I find closed captioning and subtitles distracting. Not in a, like, I can't, I, I need to be able to take in the whole visual, but literally, like, having something crawling around the bottom and changing like that distracts me from what's going on. And to that person, I'm honest, and and admittedly, I, w- I had a bit of an ableism argument with this person because I was like, listen, your refusal to allow this to happen is why it's so much harder for people who are hard of hearing to follow along with shit. I think there's an argument. And- I think if you're if you have some form of dyslexia that makes reading the subtitles really hard or if there is some sort of attention deficit component where it it actively is hard for you. I, 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 I'm here for that and I'm not trying to discourage those people or make them feel bad. I also tend I, to think those people aren't the people going, ah, fuck subtitles. Well, my, my argument more is like, listen, it doesn't take that much training to learn to ignore subtitles. Sure. Like if any of us, uh, uh if any of us have had histories of, watching um <laughs> things online in a less than legal capacity um where you know add a little bit of spice. suddenly you find yourself uh, what add, adding a little bit of spice to our internet browsing I, I i just mean like oh you know what i can't i can't find this movie <laughs> hmm, i wonder i wonder uh oh look i found it a place and, oh, it just so happens that this version has a whole bunch of subtitles in Portuguese. Oh, well, you get 10, 15 minutes into that um, questionably legal watching and you kind of go, all right, I don't even notice the Portuguese anymore because it's in it's in English. So I can learn to just ignore this and just follow along. Sure. And yeah, I'd prefer to have the closed captioning in the language that I'm reading it in, but it's fine. It's fine and it's free. Yeah. Um for so my my situation here is if someone is making that argument, it's like, okay, the fact that you are just bothered by something moving around in the bottom and can't focus enough to take like 10 minutes, get into the story and just fucking get over that and practice it a little so that you can do that. There's a whole bunch of hard of hearing people who just have to deal with shit. That's, that's my attitude there. When it comes to subtitling foreign films, I don't know, dude, I, I, I'm with you in the, you're leaving a lot of great stuff on the table. And, and as Americans, we already do a shit job of, watching media that was not made 
in this nation. It's a big right. reason why we're so culturally incompetent about the rest of the world and why we are confused at the fact that, no, in fact, Korea has an incredible film industry. There is marvelous television coming out of Central and South America. One of the best, one of the best, most, like, intense cinematic experiences I have had in the last two decades has been going to the Enzian and seeing the original Scandinavian version of the girl with the dragon tattoo. That was an experience. And you know what? I still haven't seen the Daniel Craig um, Rooney Mara version. I haven't. And I don't think I'm going to because I watched the original version and was like, yeah, I don't need to watch this again. I've uh, I've already seen what they do without the MPAA. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But that was a huge experience. And I would not have gotten that if I went, oh, wait a minute. It's in what language? I got to read? Mm. Right. I mean, I could I could spend another 20 minutes talking about just some of my favorite films are foreign films, you know, you know I, I, the most brilliant revenge movies I've ever seen are all like Korean movies, you know, old boy. And I saw the devil, the raid is one of the greatest action movies ever made. And it, it was filmed in Indonesia. Um, you know, you want to get into the dark fantasy of Guillermo del Toro. You, you owe it to yourself to watch Pan's Labyrinth and Kronos in Spanish, I believe. Um, I think it boils down to a lot of people being a little too proud, maybe just ever so slightly a bit racist. And, mm. you know, you, you said it yourself, I'm, I'm a massive movie buff. It is a huge thing of who I am. And for that reason, I really sit here and, and try to at least slap the hands metaphorically of people who I think are exhibiting bad behaviors. If you want to get into this art and, and truly appreciate it, it is so much harder to do that when you are limiting yourself by refusing to have a subtitled thing, you know, not even getting into the people who want to watch subtitles for closed captioning. I think that's fine. These, these people like you, Alex, and, and my wife is one of them too, you know, are sitting here being like, yeah, I want to be able to read the thing. And nobody is sitting here um, lacking experience for wanting to be able to read something and then flip their eyes to the opening part or the, the higher up part of the frame. It's, it's, it, it only aids people and it, it really doesn't limit in any sort of way except for the people limiting themselves. So thank you for letting me rant about subtitle haters with you. No, I'm here for it. I honestly, if you don't, I think that I've talked about on here before about how I think it is overblown nonsense when filmmakers are like, you must watch my film on film in a movie theater or else it is worthless and you are not getting the proper experience as I intended it. Because I don't think that media works that way. I, I truly don't. I think part of that viewing experience should be 
captioning. Yeah. Should involve subtitles. Should involve that ability to read along with a script. If that is an if that is a hindrance to your art, it is bad art. And if that is a hindrance to you as an audience member, you're a little spoiled. I'm sorry. You're kind of spoiled. Just <laughs> It's not hard to ignore if you don't actually want to read or follow along. Do a little practice. It ultimately is for the better. And frankly, people need to read more anyway. Yeah. Uh, shall we move on to this question? Let's go right ahead. Okay. So you did the intro. I'll read the question. This one is shorter for us. Okay. I'll be very intrigued to see what names we come up with. Sure. But okay, here we go. This is from relationships.txt. So my boyfriend, 31-year-old male, is Irish American in that his great grandparents on his mum's side were Irish. Honestly, I, 26 year old female, can claim to be Irish British by the same logic, but that seems extremely tenuous and petty. You would be correct. He's really lovely and kind, but he has the weirdest anti British views. I'm not talking, oh, the potato famine was bad, or North Ireland, <laughs> North Ireland belongs to Ireland, but full-on absolute loathing of British people. He says, my people, when he's talking about the IRA, ooh, honey, uh, and talks endlessly about how oppressed the Irish people are by the British. I pointed out to him that the Good Friday Agreement was before I was born, and he is absolutely convinced that Ireland lives in terror of British invasion and British soldiers. He seems to think the IRA were a bunch of rascally freedom fighters who sung happy songs and only targeted British soldiers. He compares them to Robin Hood. It's just bizarre. I've been to Dublin often and Belfast, and many of my closest friends are Irish or have Irish parents, but he seems to think we live in the 1970s. It's really weird. Is there anything I can get him to watch to de-radicalize him because he's driving me loopy? <laughs> I saw this and thought, I really want to talk about this with Andy. I'm so glad you did. It makes me very, very happy. Uh, but so, first, names. yeah, first we need names. Um, So many examples of Irish media. <laughs> So many examples of this guy, but I'm trying to think if any of them have a a significant other. Because, like, Diane Nguyen's brothers are all this guy. <laughs> Which is funny, because they're all Vietnamese Bostonians. Exactly. Um, I think you could make an argument that... Um, Either of the dudes from Boondock Saints are this guy, but there's no um, there's no girlfriend character to attach them to. Uh. <laughs> there's gangs of New York. There is gangs. There's of luck New of York. the Irish. There is luck of the Irish. You you, you would remember this because I know you love that movie. What are the uh, the two male and romantic female leads from Luck of the Irish? They're barely romantic. Like it's clear it's that there's Disney an attraction movie. there, but sure. they are friends. Um, but Kyle and Bonnie, of course. I'm I'm okay with Kyle and Bonnie. Okay, I do not remember their last names, but IMDb. 
I mean, while while we're God, at I it, love I'm the luck of the Irish. I'm also okay with um, what the fuck is Leo DiCaprio's name in Gangs of New York? Uh, I don't know. He's Leo DiCaprio. Yeah. Like, it's very. No, nobody other than Billy the Butcher. Nobody rem- which is Daniel oh, Day Lewis's character. I should I should remember. Oh, that's that. it. That's a that's at least a kind of fun name. I'm fine with Amsterdam and Jenny from Gangs of New York. I'm also fine with Bonnie and Kyle from Luck of the Irish. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna do just because I I like the idea of this is a, supposed to be an Irish 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 talk right. and uh. Alexis Lopez's character in that movie is named Bonnie Lopez, and that would mean that Bonnie Lopez is our name that we put in the title. I'm going to say Luck of the Irish. The joy you have makes me want to go with this. Go for it. Okay, first I found out I've been robbed. Now my hair is turning red. Hey, I used to be taller than you. Oh, sans parsarvas. Oh, yeah, I'm getting shorter. Oh, God. I love The Luck of the Irish, y'all. It's one of my favorite Disney Channel original movies. I was always more of a Brink kid. I know you were, but <laughs> I, I... Look, I love Ryan Merriman. Like, other, until A Ring of Endless Light, he could do no wrong. Yeah, fair. But A Ring of Endless Light sucked. So, would you like to get... Would you like to start? It. Yes. For, you know, this isn't really the answer to your question, but I think it needs to be brought up. I can almost, with 99% certainty, say that Kyle, our, our metaphorical Kyle in this, lives in Boston. <laughs> I, I, I I said that there is a, a genre of that guy and then brought up a bunch of characters who, who live in Boston. In, in Boston in particular, and, and I guess Massachusetts as a whole, there there is this like predominant cultural pride that extends, in my personal opinion, way farther along the bloodlines than it needs to. And I say this as somebody who is like Scottish from five generations ago and goes to the Highland games and owns a kilt. I know I'm throwing stones in a glass house here, but this, this is a bit strange. Absolutely. You know, Bonnie even says he has the weirdest anti-British views. And it is one thing to be like incredibly, um, proud of your Irish heritage and your great grandparents having the journey across from, uh, you know, from Ireland. It's another to then sit here and like build up an antagonist in your mind that really doesn't need to be there in the British people and in romanticizing the IRA, the IRA. to directly answer the question um this this gave me joy because it lets me talk about an incredibly it it lets me talk about an incredibly niche movie that i dearly love there is a movie called five minutes of heaven and it is a movie starring liam neeson and james nesbitt five minutes of heaven is a movie starring liam neeson and james nesbitt And James Nesbitt plays this guy whose brother was murdered by Liam Neeson back during the troubles. 
you know, Liam Neeson was an IRA recruit and threw a pipe bomb in a window and blew up James Nesbitt's brother. Oh, I think you told me about this. movie. Oh, I fucking love this movie. It's awesome. Um, and it is all about like 35 years later, they are meeting face to face for the first time to like shake hands and, and be a symbolic gesture of the repairing of Ireland. But James Nesbitt is so bitterly overcome with his hatred for Liam Neeson, this man who killed his brother and is sitting there monologuing in a hotel room about how he just, he cannot do this and is planning to kill the guy on live TV. It's a really good movie to show how the troubles are not something to be romanticized. You know, it was this, this bitter conflict that left nothing but broken lives in its wake. And the people who still talk about it, which back to our question, Kyle is, is trying to like desperately grab on to this idea of it. Um, you know, it just shows that all it does is consume one with hatred and, leave you ruined in your wake. You know, another movie is called 71 apostrophe seven one. And it is about a British soldier who got stuck between enemy lines in IRA Belfast during the troubles. And, you know, it kind of presents itself as, as a war movie. And I, I bring that up because it's an example of like, Hey, here's the general conflict. You know, uh, you two, when they wrote Sunday, bloody Sunday, wasn't trying to make it sound cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to you, Alex, but like, I want to address as a, I, I, I just wanted to address, like, you need to talk to your boyfriend about the things he's choosing to take pride in his heritage over. But also there are two direct movies for you to show him. I I appreciate that you went there to looking at to looking at things to watch cuz I can I can name books um you know you might you might like um Armed Struggle the History of the IRA by Richard English which is uh, a little on the drier side but is a pretty fair kind of both sides discussion of the troubles um but you know bonnie does specifically ask for things to watch so i appreciate you going there um so since andy has answered your question directly bonnie i i want to i want to take a i want to take a tract here and make a suggestion to you you have irish blood he has clearly done something that a lot of white folk and especially non-British white folk, non-British and non-French white folk specifically, like to do, which is find the ways that he was oppressed historically and latch onto it. Mm. White people love to feel oppressed. White people love to be like, oh, I can't be criticized for my privilege because once upon a time, X thing happened to people who were in my lineage. 
white people love to claim oppression. I love you, Andy. Yeah, that's um, fair. No, no, you're good. Yeah. Here's the thing. My suggestion for Kyle, Bonnie, what I suggest you do is you make a mockery of his beliefs. You show him abject, total, and complete disrespect and disregard, not for his culture, but for his need to feel oppression. I think you should not stop making fun of Kyle every single time he brings this up. Anytime he romanticizes the IRA, you should be like, yeah, you know, and they also made a great pipe bomb. Every time he talks about British oppression, I think you should be like, hmm, you uh, want some cream for those scars? Because uh, it sounds like you're not quite over it. Anytime he refused, like, okay, you know what? I agree with him. Northern Ireland should belong to Ireland. I'm going to say that up front. If he brings that up, just be like, oh, yeah, no. You want to, you, you, you want to guard, you, you want to, you want to head over and like walk up and down the border there, fella? You know, do a little, do a little guard dogging. Would, would that make you feel better? Like, you should not stop mocking the fact that. Kyle has taken a chunk of his heritage and decided to identify his personality, hook himself on this. Andy, you have Scottish lineage. I assume you're proud of that. You go to the Highland Games and wear a kilt. Yes, I do. Do you define yourself by that? No, I do not. And I don't sit here and watch Rob Roy and Highlander and like emotionally jack it to the idea of cutting down an Englishman with a broadsword. Sure. I'm Colombian. I am. I, I'm proud of that fact. I read I read books by and about Colombia. I'm happy to talk about Colombian culture on this podcast. What I know of it, I always couch it with the statement that I have not been to that particular country in 15 years. I never lived there. Um, I have my parents and I have my family and I love them all very much. And I have a limited perspective, but it's a perspective that some people don't have. But I don't wear a fucking flag. I don't pretend that they don't, that they haven't done some pretty horrible things, especially in dealing with the FARC over there. Like, I criticize my culture as much as I aggrandize it and talk it up and talk how proud I am of it. I don't define myself by a culture that I have a, what I, what I like to foster and consider a deep and rooted connection but I don't define myself by a culture that I am not fully of because I never lived there. Because I'm not... I am more Colombian than Kyle is Irish. But I define myself by that culture less than Kyle does because I don't want to pretend... I mean, in, in fairness, as a person of color in the U.S., I have a certain degree of oppression I have to contend with. Indeed. Though not as much as some other people do, and way more than Kyle actually fucking does. 
So Bonnie, you can show these movies to and uh, that Andy recommends. What was it? Five minutes in heaven and what? Five minutes in heaven and seventy one specifically. Okay, you can find these movies and show them to Kyle. I recommend you have him read some books on the IRA. Again, the one, the best one that I know is Armed Struggle, Richard English. Check it out. Um, but you should not stop making fun of him for this. The answer to white folk who want to cherry pick their histories so that they can claim oppression and define themselves by cultures that they are at best middlingly connected to is incessant mockery. Do it. Do it every time it comes up. Make him feel bad about himself. Make him feel bad about this attitude that he has and encourage him to find something else to define himself by. Because he sounds undereducated and overinvested. And that is a dangerous combination, especially for someone with hyphen American in their background. Yeah, you know, the, the final word, you, you use a really telling word, which is de-radicalize. I think de-radicalization is important no matter what context you're under. I don't think it's great that Kyle is sitting here romanticizing the IRA because that's a slippery, slippery slope to romanticizing a bunch of other groups that, uh, you know, you probably shouldn't be thinking kindly of, you know, maybe you convince Kyle that it's okay to listen to a bunch of flogging Molly and bad religion and, (laughs) you know, get really into Guinness and get really into scotch and get into an argument about which Gaelic country makes the best scotch. And he can love Ireland for all the other things that don't involve a group of people who would pipe bomb innocent civilians on the reg. So watch those movies. I I think they would be very eye opening. They're both very good um, at, at showing that the IRA were not Robin hood read the books, you know, and, and best of luck for Kyle to, learn it's okay to to not sit here and, and root for the quote-unquote underdog in this case. <laughs> oh, God. So, thank you so much for that question, Alex. I dearly loved that. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening to Love-Hate Relationship. If you've got a relationship question yourself, or if you stumble across something and you go, you know what, I want to hear these guys' take on it. I bet it's going to be interesting. We will take those questions. We will provide our perfectly unqualified advice as long as you send them in to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. And we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, you can also rate or and or review us on any and or all of those sites. It apparently helps people find the podcast. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, follow us. Engage with our posts. Look what we're talking about. Check out our new episodes. Send us your questions there. Uh, We welcome it all. 
Yeah, absolutely. If you want to find us personally, I'm Andy Boel. You can find me at JovoCop2113 on Twitter. You can also find my other podcast that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson called Cult Fiction. I got to talk a lot about movies on this one, and we talk about almost nothing but movies on that one, considering it's a cult movie show. And when we have had to watch movies with subtitles, it wasn't any worse for it. Oh God! Didn't you watch? You guys watched Pusher. We watched Pusher in the original Danish, and Pusher isn't that good of a movie. But it wasn't because it was in the original format. Oh God! You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and Lichess at a underscore x underscore r u i z. I will happily take your comments or your chess challenges you hit me up uh thanks for listening y'all as ever i'm i'm happy about this episode this was a fun one uh and please as ever tell your enemies <laughs>